Hebrews chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 1, though we'll pick up in verse 4. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, or in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The book of Hebrews was written by an unknown author and his agenda as being led by the Holy Spirit was to speak into the lives of the first century Jewish Christians who were facing a tremendous pressure from pretty much every angle of their lives to return from their profession of faith in Christ and go back to uh, the ways of Old Covenant Judaism. And so the writer was inspired to explain to them in very clear and logical and systematic terms why Jesus... And the new covenant exceeds the old covenant in such a way that the two things cannot mutually coexist. They are completely separate from one another. And so he writes, and throughout the course of the, the, the letter, he takes one thing to the next thing and explains why Jesus is both the fulfillment of what that thing was in the old covenant and how he is also then superior to it and so superior to it that to go back to it is in some way to leave Jesus. And so last week in our first three verses that we looked at, we saw how Jesus is superior to every prophet and every voice that came to the people of God throughout all of the Old Testament times. God spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets in fragmented ways and at various times. That's a fact. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in the person of his son, Jesus. And in Jesus, he's given to us a complete and total revelation of himself, leaving nothing out, nothing lacking. And it is a sufficient uh, picture for us to understand who the father is to look at Jesus. He is superior to the Old Testament prophets. And as we come to verse four now, he breaks into the second part of his uh, explanation to them in that he says that Jesus now is is being so much better or he's being made and that is he's being revealed to be so much better than or exalted above even the angels now in the 13 chapters that make up the book of Hebrews 19 times in these 13 chapters the writer is going to use the word better or the word greater or the word more excellent, because that's what he's putting forth. He's putting forth Jesus as the better, more excellent, greater than to everything else that is. And here he uses that word for the first time in this epistle in verse four, when he says, Jesus being made so much better than the angels. Now, angels, we read about them often in scripture, we hear the, the, from even a young age, we hear the term angel. We talk about 
you know, our parents tell us that we have guardian angels. We see uh, plaques in certain places with pictures on them of angelic things with blonde hair and wings and robes. And, and, and you know, we're told that's an angel. And, you know, so we're, we're introduced to this whole concept of angels uh, our whole lives. But what is an angel? An angel is a created that's important to understand. They don't exist apart from a creator. They're created spiritual entities that hold a place of rank and order and responsibility in God's kingdom. They're his servants made for his purposes. Now, there's a lot about angels that we don't know. We don't know exactly how many of them they are. We don't know exactly when it was that God created them. We don't know exactly what he had in mind when he created them uh, in, in, in their completeness. But there's a lot of things about angels that we do know as we look upon the pages of Scripture. We know, first of all, that angels are entirely separate beings from humans. They are in no part human at all. They were created by God and they have a will, but they are not made in the image of God. They are different from man, and that's important to understand. We also know about angels that they have different titles and different positions and different ranks based upon what God made them for and what he appointed them as. We read in the Bible about a ranking of the angels that are called seraphim. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet is given a vision of the throne room of God. And as he sees the throne of God and he, and he sees the glory of God there, he says that the seraphim were surrounding the throne. And he said that each of them had six wings, and that's as much of them as they could see, or as Isaiah could see, because they used two of the wings to cover the face, two of the wings to cover their bodies, and with only two that they fly. And they shouted back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the room shook at the voice of the angels and the house was filled with smoke. And it was an incredible thing that impacted Isaiah's life forever to see them. But one division of the angelic host is the seraphim, those that seem to be around the throne of God. We also read in the scripture about another ranking of angels that are called the cherubim. And we know from Ezekiel chapter 28 and what Ezekiel reveals to us is that Satan or Lucifer, prior to him becoming Satan, becoming the devil, that he was a cherubim, that he was in some way in charge of or incorporated into the worship of God in heaven. And we don't know much about you know, what the cherubim were, what they were made to, made to do, uh, aside from what we read about um, Satan there, that he was the anointed cherub that covers. That's what he's called there. And he, he would like it if none of us knew that, 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 that we didn't know that Satan was an angel, that he's, a, he's one of them that fell, but he is a created being. He's not God's equal, but he was of the rankings of the cherubim. We also read about Michael, and he is called the archangel. Now, he's the only uh, angel in the Bible that's associated with that title. There's, no, there's not like a, a, a host of angels that we know of that are, well, these are the archangels. There's only Michael the archangel, the covering angel. And we see Michael in the scripture oftentimes when, you know, uh, ordering the host of, you know, kind of the fighting angels, if you would. We see angel guarding Israel. We always see Michael in some way, uh, there's a battle involved when Michael comes on the scene. 
We also read about Gabriel, and Gabriel isn't given a specific title. We don't know uh, where he falls in, in, in things, but what we do know about Gabriel is that he is always giving a message to a person, that when Gabriel's on the scene, his job is to give a message, and that message always has something to do with the coming of Christ in some way, whether it was to Daniel, whom Gabriel was sent to, to deliver uh, information concerning the first coming of Christ, or or whether it was Mary or John and Elizabeth, uh, I'm sorry, Zecharias and Elizabeth announcing the birth of John the Baptist. It was Gabriel that came and gave those announcements. And so there are different rankings of angels, and they serve God's purposes accordingly as they were made and what they were made to do. We also know about angels that they are very much involved in the affairs of human government and of human lives. We read about that in the book of Daniel. When uh, Daniel was seeking God for specific information and for a specific purpose, he fasted and prayed for three full weeks, 21 days. And after 21 days, uh, the answer came. And it was Gabriel who came to give the answer uh, to him. And, And Gabriel says to Daniel, he says that at the very beginning, when you first set your face to seek the Lord in this thing, I was commissioned to come and give you an answer. But then he says this, but the prince of Persia withstood me, meaning the message was sent out immediately, but it took three weeks for me to be able to get to you because in an invisible realm, in a place, in a way that you couldn't see, I was hindered from making it here. And it wasn't until Michael, the archangel came and helped me that I was able then to get the message now here to you. And so what we learn from that, from that scripture alone, is that there are principalities, angelic hosts that are doing things over nations. He was called the Prince of Persia, over nations and over um, areas, principalities, that, and there are spiritual strings attached to the things that are going on even within human government. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our battle and our warfare and the conflicts of this life are not the result or byproduct of human engagement, but rather they're the result of spiritual things that we cannot see nor can we understand. And so and there are angelic things happening, spiritual strings attached to things that are happening on earth that we don't understand, but angels very much involved in human government, also in human lives. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 concerning children, he said, their angels do always behold the face of my father, which is in heaven. Now that does not mean that every child has a guardian angel. It does mean that the angelic host is commissioned to watch over at least children. And I, the man speaking to you right now, have the biggest case of Peter Pan syndrome of anyone that you've ever known. And so I know I still have guardian angels, you know, plural, that uh, that have to do things on, for, for me from time to time, you know. But God commissions angels to minister on behalf of his people. They're involved in our lives in some way. We also know that angels are very much involved in church gatherings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul makes an allusion to it 
when he says that we need to take heed to our behavior in church meetings because of the angels, that they are present, that even now, right now, as we are doing what we are doing, there are angels involved in things in ways that we can't see nor do we understand, but they are here. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter writes and he says concerning the salvation that you and I are partakers of. He says that angels, they look into the things concerning salvation with wonder. That they they look at us and they see the face of God and and there's a a short circuit in their understanding. That they, they they can't put the two things together. They can't understand the holiness of God and the fallenness of man and reconcile a God who would love man enough to do what he did on the cross. And angels look into it and try to understand it, and their calculator just has a giant E right on the screen because they can't put the two things together, but they try. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus said, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and so on and so on. He said, speak to the angel and say, So we know that there are angels that watch over churches. That's one of the reasons, by the way, why I believe that gathering together is is infinitely more valuable than catching up on on tape or following up uh, on a message recorded later on. I think there's a dynamic of spiritual things that happen when the church is gathered together that you cannot get. There's things you can get uh, from doing it that way, but there's a, a dynamic that exists in the meeting that is essential, get angels involved in those things. We also know about angels is that they are extremely powerful and extremely majestic creatures if you ever get a glimpse of one. We have the testimony in the Old Testament of one angel who went through the, the host of the camp of the Syrians and in one night, one angel killed 180,000 men. Hezekiah just prayed and said, Lord, you can do what man cannot do, and we're asking you to help us. And in one night, God just sent an angel, and 180,000 dead troops were revealed the next day. That's power. One angel. That's more powerful than me. I can't do that. Samson killed 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey, but I can't do what he couldn't do, what an angel could do. We read about what took place in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was the work of the hand of two angels, maybe one. If one of the two angels that went in was used to carry Lot and and, and his family out, then that left only one to do what took place in the city of Sodom. We know that when Daniel saw an angel as he was praying, in Daniel chapter 10, it's recorded. When John the apostle saw a couple of angels during the time when he was given the revelation, they were so overwhelmed by what they saw that they were tempted to worship. They they had no other natural recourse upon seeing that than to fall on their faces. And the angels had to say, get up, we're servants just like you. Hurry up, get off your knees, you know, and worship God, the angel told John uh, at the end of the thing. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter one, he gives a description of an angelic uh, being that he saw. And when you read it, 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 it reads like you're reading something out of a sci-fi article. It had eyes all over it. It had multiple faces and it, it moved at the speed of thought, you know, and uh, amazing, remarkable things to try to uh, even understand, to draw a picture of it. You never could, you know, it's just unfathomable to realize, but they are majestic and powerful 
beings. We also know concerning angels that one third, and this is important to, to, to catch, and it applies to the context of our study tonight, that one third of the angelic host that God created joined Satan in his rebellion against God. Meaning that only two thirds of all of the angels that exist are good angels. Meaning that there is one third amongst all that are not good. And, and, and what that means is that there are some good angels and that there's some bad angels. And that puts you and me at a, at a tremendous disadvantage because that means that we have no clue at any given time, first of all, what the angels are doing, but second of all, which ones are good and which ones aren't. And, and so that presents a challenge to us uh, that the text will help us to understand how to overcome that tonight. Um, if you want to read about Satan's rebellion, it's, it's Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, and it describes what happened, who Satan was before he fell, why he fell, what happened to him after, how, how, how um, Lucifer became the devil. And so that question is answered in those verses. And then finally, concerning angels, we know is that they were very highly esteemed in Old Testament times even as they, they can be in the modern era, the days that we live in today. We know that Abraham was visited by angels, that God came to him with two angels when they were on their way to Sodom. We know that Jacob had a vision of angels ascending and descending upon a stairway that, that stretched between the heavens and the earth. We know that they were instrumental in the ministry of Daniel and Elijah and others of the prophets. And thus, uh, thus, amongst the worshipers of God in Old Testament times, they were highly esteemed and they were looked to in many ways. And that's the reason why the writer of Hebrews is even bringing this up. Now, the word angel literally means messenger. It's what they are. When God spoke to the people from Mount Sinai and he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, Angels were involved in that. We're going to see that a little bit later in our study tonight. But once that happened and the people heard the voice of God and saw the things that they saw, the people of God came to Moses with one accord. They were unified in this request. And they said, listen, we just heard things that have blown our minds. And we never want to hear those things again. So here's the deal. You go talk to God and then come and tell us what he said. And we'll do it. But please don't subject us to that again. That was far too intense for what we're able to handle at this point in our spiritual maturity. And so what they did is that they willingly set themselves in a place where they would rather hear from a messenger sent by God than to hear from God himself. And so angelic esteem was very high in Old Testament times because of that uh, that very thing. The people longed to and wanted to and looked to hear from angels. And so it was important for the Hebrew Christians to understand why Jesus is different than the angels and why he's exalted over the angels. You say, I understand that, but what does it have to do with me tonight? And why is it in the Bible? God knew it would be in the Bible in this day. Why do I need to know that Jesus is superior over angels now? Here's why. Because one third of all of the fallen, or I'm sorry, of all of the angels are fallen. 
And the aim and intent of fallen angels is to diminish the person of Jesus Christ in some way. That's their goal and their aim, is if they can influence a life and influence a person to make less of Jesus or to believe something about Jesus that is less than or other than what he is, then they've accomplished their goal. And they're extremely crafty in the way that they do that. They never come with a red suit on and with an evil face, like looking all demonic or something like that. They come as angels of light. They come in a way deceiving. They're lying spirits in some way. And they seek to pull people away from Jesus in subtle ways. And it was a problem in the church of the first century as it is in the church today. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said this. He says, though we or an angel from heaven preach unto you any other gospel than what you've received, then let him be accursed. Paul said it again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He said the same thing concerning the gospel. He said, if if, if any messenger or even an angel comes and preaches any other gospel unto you, then that person or that angel is to be cursed or is accursed. It's fallen. And, and, and it's important that we understand that because as much as it was a problem in Paul's day, it's still a problem today. The entire Mormon religion is founded and built upon the words of a fallen angel. The prophet, lowercase p, false prophet, Joseph Smith, found glasses and a plate and an angel, Moroni, came to him and gave to him the interpretation of the words upon that plate, the foundation of the entire religion. And yet what that religion is founded upon is the premise that Jesus Christ is nothing more than an angel. They diminish the person of Christ. Very much the same thing with the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses make Jesus to be nothing more than an angel. He is the brother of Michael, the archangel. And so you can see how a lying spirit a fallen angel will come and seek to diminish the person of Christ to bring deception to a whole group of people. It happens also in individual lives. People will come sometimes and they'll have a very sincere spiritual experience, just like Joseph Smith did. An angel will come. Someone will say, an angel came to me and spoke to me and told me things. And that angel will say things that in subtle ways will diminish the person of Christ or diminish that person's faith in Christ and they'll put more confidence in what they heard and experienced at the hands of an angel than what they experience and hear at the hands of Christ and the word of God. And thus it's so critically important that we don't fix or fasten our eyes at all upon the angelic realm, but that we fix and fasten our eyes upon Jesus and the word of God and who he sets forth God to be and that that's where our faith stands and rests upon and that we stray not to the left hand or to the right from that. And if we get it in our mind in some way that we have any relationship with angels outside of what God commissions them to do for us that has none of, it's none of our business at all, then we're in a, in a bad place. Jesus is superior. He's being made so much better than the angels. And it's essential that we understand the difference between the person of Jesus Christ and the angelic realm that serve God's purposes. And that's what 
the writer of Hebrews sets forth for us uh, now in this thing. It says that he is being made so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So here's what we need to know concerning Christ and the difference between Jesus Christ and the angels. First of all, he tells us in verse 4 that Jesus has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they have. Now, the word inheritance there does not mean that Jesus was kind of a candidate for this position and that somehow the lot fell on him and he inherited it, a greater name. No, what the word literally means is that he obtained it by birthright meaning because of who he is, because of his identity, because he is the son of God, he has a greater name than they. It's more excellent. It's surpassing. And then he tells us what that name is, the name that exceeds or excels. He says in verse five, and he's going to quote seven verses of Old Testament scripture in this passage. He says, for unto which of the angels said he, that is God, at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. In other words, God the Father spoke concerning Jesus, calling him his son. He quotes that from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, that he is begotten. Now, some of the cults will take this verse and they'll say, see, that's proof that Jesus is a created being. Because the father says concerning the son that this day I have begotten thee. See, Jesus is created. He's not eternally coexistent with the father. He came along sometimes after. No, 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 no. The best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible, that's right. In Acts chapter 13, the apostle Paul quotes the same verse from the Psalms when he was preaching. And he says this in Psalm, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 13 Verse 32, he says, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The apostle Paul says that has nothing to do with Jesus' death creation that has everything to do with Jesus resurrection that he's the first begotten from the dead he's the first one that's ever been raised back to life from the dead in the way that Jesus was that's what that verse means not that Jesus is created in some way but the point that that the apostle who wrote Hebrews is making is that he is not called an angel he's called his son you are my son this day I have begotten Then again, he quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And again, he quotes now in verse 6 from, um, uh, he says, and again, when he brings the first begotten into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, but it's the Septuagint. Uh, version of it so when you look it up in yours you're gonna be like doesn't sound like it says that it does say that you translate it to greek and then um that was the version of the bible that they were reading in those days but it says the same thing also in the psalm so it's a moot point anyways but then he goes on in verse seven then to give the contrast of what the angels are 
If the son, Jesus, is called the son, the angels, it says, unto the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers, the word minister means servant, a flame of fire. So if Jesus is the son and the angels are servants, then it stands to reason that Jesus has a more excellent name than they. That is a more superior title or ranking. He is not the same in any stretch or equivalent to the angels. He is the son and they are the angels. They are the servants. Now, when the word son is used concerning Jesus, it is used in a different context than it is any other time within the Bible. There are times in the scriptures where the angels are called the sons of God, lowercase s, the, the, the benai Elohim, or the sons of God. But it's always used in a very plural and generic sense in the context that they are created by him. He sired them through their creation. The word sons is also used of Christians or true believers, that we are the sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus taught us that when you pray, say, our Father. You know, and in that context of relationship, we are his sons and daughters, but it is by adoption. We've been grafted into his family. We've been brought in by being joined to Christ. But when the Bible calls Jesus the only begotten son of God, he is altogether separate from everything that they are, singular, separate, and eternally coexistent with the father. So what does it mean that Jesus is the son? The writer goes on in verse 8 to develop it even further. Okay, he's the son, they're servants, so what? He says, but unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, he says three things concerning the son in that verse that not only sets him higher than the angel's by right of family, but he calls him, first of all, a king. He says, thy throne, that he's majesty, not minister. He says, thy throne, O God. Now, here you have biblical proof that Jesus Christ is none other than God himself, the triunity of God. Because you have God the Father speaking, calling Jesus the Son, God. To the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is, and then number three, forever and ever. That is, that it is um, the, the, the continual perpetuity or unbroken perpetuity of time, meaning that the kingship and the godship of Jesus extends infinitely backwards and forwards, meaning that Jesus was the king or the majesty or God from eternity past and moving forward into eternity forever, that he is the king of kings. It's an unchanging or immutable kingdom. So he's God. And he calls it a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, quoting from Psalm chapter 45, verses six and seven. And then he describes the, uh, the type of his kingdom or the way that he rules in verse nine. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And so quoting from Psalm chapter 45, describing the majesty of Jesus Christ himself 
from that psalm. And he gives to us the scepter of his kingdom or the description of how he rules. And I love this. It speaks so loudly concerning him, his person. Is that first of all, he's a king who, who establishes his authority upon his righteousness. That is that the authority that Jesus has as a king is a, is a moral authority. He says it's a righteous scepter that you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Isn't that comforting to think that the king that we will bow before for all of eternity, that the, 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 the foundation of his throne is rightness or righteousness based upon doing what's right. That's, that just should make us all just go, oh, Jesus, come now. <laughs> Thank you that, that that's the way that you rule. When we think about the corruption that exists within the rulership of men, or even the corruption that exists within our own hearts, and the things that drive rulers and people to do the things that they do, and to rule the way that they rule, and to realize that the highest king and the highest authority in all the universe stands upon a moral ground, that it's a righteous authority. But it also speaks to you and I, and what it does is it subtly exhorts us unto the righteousness that God calls us into. Did you know that there is a moral authority that exists within this world? That there is an authority that exists in a life of a person who does what's right? We, we see it all the way throughout the Bible. Um, I, I was thinking today as I was looking at the scripture of um, Judah and Tamar in the Old Testament, the son of Jacob. And, and he had kind of an episode with, with uh, his sons where he was seeking to kind of marry them off. And he gave, them, gave his oldest son to this girl, Tamar. And Tamar, um, you know, basically doesn't have a child and the oldest son dies. And so Judah takes Tamar and he gives her to the second son and then he dies. And then the third son comes of age and Tamar is legally supposed to be given to him, but Judah doesn't want to give her to him because his sons keep dying from this woman, you know? So he kind of withholds her. And so uh, the, the son grows up and, and, and Tamar isn't given to him. And Tamar knows it's not right. And she's just kind of sitting here waiting for something to happen. And so she does this exceedingly deceptive and wicked thing is that she dresses up like a prostitute and she allures Judah, the father, and she gets pregnant by him. And when Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he immediately says, bring the stake. We're going to burn her because she played the whore. And what she does is that at the moment that she's about to be killed because of her sin, she goes, oh yeah, by the way, um, do you know whose staff and whose ring and whose bracelet this is? That was the payment for his you know, offering for her services. He goes, this, this, th these belong to the man who impregnated me. And in front of everyone, Judah was exposed that he's the one that played the harlot. He's the one that had sinned. And his word to Tamar that day was he said that you are more righteous than I. And her life was spared because she stood upon a moral authority. Now, I know that is such a crooked illustration <laughs> of moral authority. But here's the point, and the point still stands, is that her life was spared because she was more righteous than Judah. And here's what I would say to you tonight is that what God has provided to you and I through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit in his life is the power to obey his word and his commands and to live righteously. And the result of 
Taking him up on that and choosing to live in a right way is a moral authority that exists within our lives. And that is a very real thing. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You will outlive your critics if you choose to stand upon what he calls us into and empowers us unto. There's a great advantage in it. And what that also results in then is a moral enjoyment. Notice what it says afterwards. It says that therefore God, even thy God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. There is a, a joy that accompanies holiness in the lives of God's people. Conversely, there is an anxiety and a lack of peace that accompanies wickedness in the lives of God's people. It's just the law of the universe, just like gravity. And so there's a joy in it. And so God says that this is the scepter of your kingdom. There's moral authority and there's moral enjoyment. Then in verses 10 through 12, he quotes from Psalm chapter 102, verses 25 to 27. He says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but you remain. He says two things in those verses. First of all, he calls him Lord. He says, thou Lord in the beginning. And then he calls him eternal. He says, they shall perish, but you remain. They will wax old as does a garment. And as a vesture shall you fold them up and they shall be changed. But you are the same and thy years shall not fail. The immutability of God that he cannot change. Listen, if God could change, then God is not perfect. Because perfection means completion. And if there's any change to perfection, then it wasn't perfect to begin with. And therefore, God, by his very definition, if he is God, he must be unchanging or immutable. That's why the Bible says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why when God identified himself to Moses, he called himself the I am. Because nothing will ever change concerning who the person of God is. And what the scripture is declaring to us here is that that same deity and immutability of deity is ascribed to Jesus Christ as is to the Father or was believed to be in the Old Testament. And so the implication or the summation of this is that not only is Jesus by inheritance given a greater title and that he's called the Son, and not only is he majesty wherein angels are only ministry or ministers, but he is God and they are not. And therefore Jesus is highly exalted above them. Verse 13, he says, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool. Again, quoting from Psalm chapter 110, verse one, speaking of the exalted place of the risen, glorified Lord, that it is completely other and separate than the angels. And then finally, concerning the angels in verse 14, he says, are they not, this is what they are, all ministering spirits sent forth by God to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That God's purpose and intent in our lives with the angelic host is that he uses them in some way to serve us, that they are even under us. And that's what he's going to get into uh, even further on 
into the next chapter. At the end of the book of Hebrews in, in chapter 13, when, when the writer is just kind of signing off and giving his closing exhortation, he says, be careful to remember to entertain strangers. And here's why. Because some, having done so, have entertained angels unawares. Meaning that it still happens even today that angels show up in the lives of God's people in some way, being sent by God, and it happens without us even knowing it. I remember a time, I think I've shared this before, forgive my redundance, but I remember one time we, we lived in an apartment with a concrete floor. And um, my son Rocky, who was maybe one or two at the time, was dancing on the edge of the couch and he started to go. Like He just kind of lost his balance backwards and he was about to fall onto the concrete floor. And Georgia and I were watching from the other side of the room and just that horrified like <gasps> look of, of this is about to be real ugly, you know, as he, he was uncontrollably falling. And he got to like, you know, I don't want to over-exaggerate it, but he got to an angle that was you know, a scary angle. And then all of a sudden, no bending. It wasn't like a regaining of the balance, just straight bodied. He just went and came right back up. And we, we looked at each other and we're like, did you see that? Like it was, it was obviously supernatural. You know, it was just like God just sent an angel, just swooped him right back up. I remember a time uh, a couple years later, I was, um, don't ever do this. (laughs) I was um, lighting a bonfire with gasoline, with a gas can. And, you know, and I had this, um, you know, this little tiny fire going and I had this gas can and I was just shooting little spurts out of the tip of the gas can, you know. And so I would just hit it with a spurt and then pull, pull away, burn up. And I just couldn't get this fire going. So I kept doing this over and over again. And finally, one of the times I, I splashed it and the, the gas caught fire and came back to the gas can. And the tip of the gas can is, is like shooting out flames. And I panicked. And so when you're not thinking and you panic and you see fire, your instinct is shake it, right? Like try to shake it. So I shook it and more gas just started like spraying out of the tip. And, and so this, this thing is expanding now. And I'm thinking that I'm holding a grenade, that this thing's about to explode in my hand. So I took the thing and I just hawked it. I just threw it, launched it. And it went over this like little berm that was behind the fire pit, like this little hill, and it disappeared out of my sight. And I just ran. You know what I'm thinking? I feel like it's slow motion, like the Terminator and this huge explosion and I'm going to dive. And, you know, that, that's what I'm picturing in my mind. So I'm running and I turn around and look and nothing happened. And I, and I wait and I wait and I wait, I'm looking for smoke, I'm looking for something, and I dare not go look, you know, because that's when it's going to explode, you know. So after like five minutes, I look, I go over there, and, and the fire's out. There's no, no fire at all whatsoever. Now, that might have just been natural, okay? I didn't see an angel. There was nothing like that. But the same day, a couple hours later, my in-laws were in town. We went hiking in the woods with the kids. And there was this tree fallen that had fallen in the wire, the wedge of another tree. And it was like just just enough that you could climb it. And so I walk up and my kids are watching and I'm being a really bad dad because I'm just being a terrible example of safety in the woods, you know. But I'm having a great time and I'm climbing up this thing and I get up really high and there's a vine that's hanging from from the tree right up where the thing comes in, you know. And we used to do this when we were kids. We'd swing on these vines and, you know, they're up there, they're secure, they're wrapped around, it's thick, it's old, it's living, you know. 
So I grabbed this vine and they're all looking at me like, you're not. And I was like, oh yes, I am, you know? And I grabbed this vine and I launched off of this thing, like up in the air, you know? And as I jumped off, the top of the tree that the, the vine was attached to broke right off. And, and I start going down, you know, I'm dropping, holding onto this vine. And then right before I hit the ground, so I was like maybe like six inches off the ground, something caught it and hung it up and it just slowed me to a stop and I landed gracefully on the ground on two feet. But then it released and started coming down like right over me and I'm just holding this vine and all of a sudden this vine just starts going and it starts wrapping around just as a circle and then the top of that tree just went right next to me and I'm standing here holding this vine unscratched, unscathed, looking at my family who's going, and my wife's going, is that enough now? <laughs> Set the vine down. <laughs> Move along. God protects people that don't deserve to be protected. <laughs> Sent forth on behalf to minister on behalf of those who shall be heirs of salvation. And I'm sure that every one of us, there are times in our life when God does things that we can see that God sent an angel. We were talking about it at the dinner table. And just as you think about it, you recollect and you realize that God is involved in our lives. And he uses the resources at his disposal to help us. And we really can trust him in the things. Well, as we just begin chapter two, and we're, we're coming to a close, but in just the first couple of verses here, he's going to apply the things that he has said thus far. And he says this. And so by way of application for our Bible study tonight, Paul writes in verse one, he says, therefore, whenever you see that word, therefore, it always connects what was just said to what he's about to say. And so he's saying in light of all of the things that we've said concerning Jesus and his glory over the prophets and over the angels. He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed or we ought to pay the closer attention to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip or more accurately it would be or that we should let them drift away. He's saying to us here, he's saying that we ought to pay attention to the gospel of salvation that comes through Christ and to the word of God wherein that gospel is contained, lest at any time it happened to us as it was happening to them in the first century church, that they would begin to drift away from having perfect faith and trust in Jesus Christ and nothing else. To slip means to drift away. And so the, the danger that's being implied in this verse is that there is a current that exists within this world that is seeking to draw Christians away from Jesus Christ. And if we don't know that, then we are foolish. Do you understand that there is a spiritual current that is seeking to draw you and me away from Jesus Christ? That current comes in the form of worldly influences, just the spirit of the world. John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This world is contrary to Christ. And if we're given to the things of the world, we're given to a current that will pull us away from Christ. There is a current that exists over the times that we live in. 
If you, people say it's a sign of the times. And whether or not that means for us the end of times or whether these are just the times that are these times, we live in tough times. And in these times, there's a current that, that exists within this world and within our country that's seeking to pull us away from the things of Christ. And if we're overcome by that current, we'll be moved away from him. There are currents that exist within our own flesh, things that we have natural affinities to that are contrary to the things that God has called us to be a part of in our lives. And if we give ourselves to those things, then we're giving ourselves to a current that is seeking to cause us to drift away from Jesus Christ. And there's a danger of drifting that exists in the lives of all of God's people. But the good news is that as strong as that current ever is, there is also an anchor that keeps us settled in Jesus Christ. And what is that anchor? He says, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard so that we don't fall under this drifting. So what are the things that we have heard? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That God incarnate came in human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was crucified at the hands of his creation, was died, buried, rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, and that he is returning and will come for a holy church, the gospel of our salvation, that we would give the more earnest heed and not think at one moment that we can put our trust in anything else for our salvation. To give the more earnest heed to the things that God has spoken to us in his word, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man and woman of God might be thoroughly complete, lacking nothing. And if we're not being influenced by the current that keeps us anchored in Christ, then we're going to become subject to the current that's seeking to draw us away from Christ. And the writer is encouraging us to be bound to the anchor of the things that we have heard. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, Until I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give yourself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine or the teaching. Continue in them. For in doing this, you shall both save yourself and them that hear you. And so the call to us as Christians is that we must continually be giving ourselves to the things that we have heard and the things that we know. Otherwise, we set ourselves in a place where there's the potential of drifting away. The way that a person backslides when a person backslides it happens always progressively. It happens, first of all, when the fact of their salvation becomes less important to them. They, they think less and less about what they were saved from and what, they were, what they're being saved unto. They forget their old life. They lose a fear of God and the fear of hell. They forget what it was like to be lost. And then soon the word of God drifts from their, their, their uh, priorities and the gospel becomes common and familiar. And then little by little, they begin to drift. It doesn't happen all at once. There's just a, there's a, a, an imperceptible moving away from God by degrees. And it's a scary thing to realize that it's possible for us to drift away to a point where our Christianity can become nothing more than just a profession 
All I, I say I'm a Christian. I go to church. I go through the motions. But in my heart, I've drifted away from God. And the scripture testifies. It happened to Samson. It happened to Saul, King Saul. It happened to Demas in the New Testament, one of Paul's closest associates. And it can happen to us. We can drift away from the Lord. He says, For if the word that was spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Speaking of the law, it was given by God at the hand of angels through a mediator. Unto a mediator, we're told in the Bible. The word spoken by angels. And if that law, the old covenant, was disobeyed and there was retribution for disobedience to the law, he says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and then was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. There is one salvation that exists in this world. And that salvation is through the person of Jesus Christ who came to take the place of sinful man. And for a man or a woman to neglect that salvation and to never come to, 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 to appropriate it in their own life, or for a person to neglect it in a way wherein they become careless concerning it and they drift away to the point where, like Demas, they forsake the things of God because of a love for this present world, then that person needs to fear. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect? He uses the word we six times in these verses. He includes himself. And it's a fear that we ought to have. And then the three witnesses concerning the salvation, he says, first, it began to be spoken by Jesus himself. And then secondly, it was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, the witness of the apostles. And then number three, by God himself, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. That God has given signs. What's the purpose of a sign? A sign is set in a strategic location in order to help a person find a destination. And God has provided signs through the apostles and at various times and for various reasons so that you and I will see those signs and then come to the proper conclusion in our lives concerning the person of Jesus Christ. What's a wonder? A wonder is something that God does that causes a person to wonder why did that happen? <laughs> what, what just happened? And it causes them to ask so that they might then receive an answer. And thus, God has done bearing witness of the gospel through the person of Christ. And in closing, and the musicians can come, I ask two questions of you to consider by way of personal application. Number one, have you drifted tonight? Can you think of a time in your life or in your Christian experience when Jesus was more to you than he is now? I'm not saying that church is more to you or that your service for Jesus is more to you or that some element of Christian things is more important to you. But is Jesus ever increasingly the most important thing to you in the highest affection in your life? Because if not, then you've probably drifted or you're drifting. And it's a scary thing to realize that we have the potential to do that. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should drift away.
If we are willingly, especially in the days that we live in, giving ourselves in exposure to the currents that draw us away from Christ, it's only a matter of time before those things have an effect within our lives. And we're foolish if we do it. The more we influence ourselves in the things that draw us into the current of Christ, those things are going to hold us fast to the anchor. And so I ask you tonight, where are you in relation to the anchor? You ever go to the ocean and you're out in the ocean and you're just enjoying the day and the waves? And as, as you, you know, kind of lose track of time, the little landmark that you used to recognize where your place was set up on the beach is suddenly missing. You're looking and, wait, there was a, an umbrella or, you know, a lifeguard chair. There was something there, lemonade stand, and I don't see it anymore. And I don't know where I am. And it happened in a way that you didn't even know it. And that can happen to a Christian concerning the things of God. But the good news is that if you look long enough, there's always a cross in the same place that it always has been. And there's an invitation at all times for you and I to come back to that place and to lay down at the foot of that cross anything in our lives that has caused us to come under the current or the influence of something that is pulling us away from Jesus Christ. And we all need that from time to time. And only the cross is powerful enough to break the current that's drawing us away. Where are you tonight? Is there anyone here tonight, second thing, and then we're done, 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 that you can say, I've neglected such a great salvation. I've tasted it. I've heard it. I've listened to it. I've entertained it. But I haven't received it. God in the person of Christ has removed you and I from the curse of the law. Salvation is not contingent on us being good enough or doing enough or keeping church attendance, or on any other thing that bears anything in our responsibility at all. And he calls you and I to put our complete faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins. And in doing that, he takes our name off of the list of those that will be judged eternally. And he places our names on the list of people that will be saved eternally. And for a person to neglect that salvation and think that they can do it themselves or to think that there's some other way or to think that that is nothing in the economy of heaven and earth, that person will deserve the hell that they receive because they've stepped over the broken, bloodied body of Jesus to do it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you're drifting tonight, come back to Christ. If you've neglected tonight, receive Christ. Invite him to be the Lord of your life. He says no to absolutely no one. And he embraces with open arms. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look again at the person of Jesus in his majesty and exaltation. And we ask you, Father, that you would reveal to us again who he is what he's done, and who we are because of that. May we know you. May we love you. May we see you. Open our understanding. Draw us ever deeper, ever further, and possess all of our affections. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.